One of the traditions that we do in our worship service that we've already done is the reading of God's word. And I think it's a good thing for us to hear the word of God and think about it and then go through it in detail, which we're about to do. But there's a reason why, because I'm sure there's many questions that were raised as that was being read. Perhaps some of us were wondering, is this hyperbole? Is this exaggeration when James is saying things like that there are fights and quarrels among you, writing to Christians, and doing all these things and comparing it to war and to fighting? Other of us probably went, ooh, that's a little too close to home as we think about our past week or other times in our life when we had this work out. Or if you've been coming here on a regular basis for this intermittent on James, whenever we get to it, you'll see that maybe you remember the last time that we looked at this ended in chapter 3, verse 18, where it says, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And then he proceeds in verse 1 of chapter 4 to say, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Isn't that much of a disruptive jump? What is James trying to tell us? Well, I think one of the major storylines of the Bible that he's exposing here is that of relationships, the fundamental need that we have of true, good, honest relationships. And the problem is, is that first of all, the broken relationship that we have with God in Genesis chapter 3, which now impacts our relationship with those around us, made in God's image, in God's world, and we see this play out, play out all too often. Here's one way I'd like to illustrate this from everyday life. If we were to ask a coworker or a neighbor, what's the biggest problem facing the world today, they might identify big picture things such as politics, education, and the environment, finances. But if they were honest, and in fact, if you knew them well enough that they could be honest with you, they probably would raise a relational concern, that of a coworker, strained relationships with family members, extended family members. See, regardless of where we are at in human history, no matter where we reside on planet Earth, wherever two or three are gathered, there will be disagreements, quarrels, and fights. Enter the gospel of Jesus, which is indeed good news. Because while it does in some ways tangentially address those bigger issues of society and the world, it also deals with the everydayness of life addressing our fundamental relational issues with God and with those around us. See, James has been challenging Christian in his day and Christians in our day to live differently, to live by God's wisdom, what he describes in the previous chapter as wisdom from above, to not live from my own autonomous way, to not live in my self-directed way, my self-exalting perspective, but to live a life that has God at the center, that controls things such as my tongue, as we looked at in chapter 3. You see, in short, unless the vertical relationship with God is made right, the horizontal relationship with each other will never be made right. Tonight, we're looking at James 4, 1 to 10, and it's the first of a two-part series within the series, within the intermittent, um, of the root of the spiritual concern that James is addressing. In fact, we uh, have it quite near to this one. It's actually next Sunday morning. We're going to look at the same verses from a slightly different angle. 
And what James is probing in these verses that I want us to consider tonight is this. Will I live my earthly existence by human wisdom as it works its way out in practice in destructive behavior? Or will I humbly, will you humbly receive the wisdom that is from above, from God the Father, producing this harvest of peace? So as we look at this passage, we need to confront our own hearts, really the center of our hearts, what we're trusting in. And there are three considerations that these texts, especially the first five or six verses, present to us. The first is my fundamental problem. The fundamental problem that we have is actually us. It's on the inside. And we'll see how it was mentioned here, even in James, saying that this comes from within you. Second, we're going to look at the final standard. My final standard, your final standard, is something external. It's something outside of it. It's actually God's law. And third, my foundational hope. My foundational hope is actually upward and is found in the grace of Jesus Christ. So there's a fundamental problem, a final standard, and a fundamental foundational hope. Uh, First of all, a fundamental problem. What's on the inside? Well, the scripture from beginning to end talks so much about our hearts. And from the Bible's perspective, this is not an organ within the human body. It's the seat of one's emotions, where my affections are, what drives my outlook, what drives my actions and my words and my living on a daily basis. Now, if that sounds ethereal, if that sounds kind of weird, think of it this way. This is a good question to ask where your heart is. If you had the ability to change one thing in your life to make it better right now, what would it be? And, second follow-up, how would that really give you satisfaction and meaning? Now, I'd like to think that my answer and your answer would be something spiritual. But in these opening verses of James, as he describes, it is clear that when we live by human wisdom and give a human answer to that, We will desire things, we will covet, we will fight, we will do whatever we want, whatever we can to get what we crave. See, this entire letter is a challenge to have any desire of my heart saturated, dripping from the wisdom from above. And however, if you look at these first three chapters, it's not always the case. He's had to deal with things like doubting God. Is God really for me? Words that speak with a tongue that is filled with poison and not love. Making distinctions purely on the basis of externals when we look at other people. See, James, the spiritual physician, has yet another diagnosis for us. This time, the core of our ailment, the heart and what the heart desires. Look again at chapter 4, verse 1. That's what he says. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? This is written to house churches spread all over the Roman Empire. And it's clear that James is hearing of, rumors of, reports of, the churches are not getting along, that there are fights and quarrels in the church. In fact, some commentators have suggested that while it may seem like that sudden shift from the end of chapter 3, verse 18, this harvest of peace, to now... Many have made the claim that it's actually continuing his thought from the first verse of chapter 3, where he's addressing those who would be teachers. One of the common themes in these general epistles, 
that of not to a specific church, like the book of Romans was specifically to Rome, but it was passed on to other churches. These general epistles of James and John's letters, Jude and Peter, were written to the churches broadly. There are themes of this in those letters, that there are false teachers coming in and using their tongues unwisely. Even this morning, when Pastor Liam talked about this, and those who would put themselves up and go from church to church, the New Testament deals with this. It could also be flowing from chapter 3, which talks about the use of the tongue in general, not just those who are teachers, but all of us rightly using our tongue. And how else would we express these things in chapter 4, verse 1, these fights and quarrels, oftentimes through our tongues? You see, from the Bible's perspective, this relational problem is because of our relationship with God. In contrast with this, when he says, is it not the passions that are war within you? This is heavenly wisdom because it identifies me and my desires, my passions, my agenda as the problem. You see, worldly wisdom, the wisdom that is from below that James has been dealing with, always wants to blame someone else. It's someone else's fault that I have problems, that I have conflicts. Well, he started it. We've never heard that before, have we, parents? We want to blame things that come from outside of us. If there's a relational problem, it must be somebody else. Now, to be sure, there are times when people inflict harm on others, on the innocent. But that's not what James is challenging here. He's challenging the basic human default, the wisdom from below reaction that looks everywhere else except for in me for the problem. See, as we consider the origins of these fights and quarrels, we are brought face to face with the harsh reality of what James says, that I have a part, even ever so small, in these fights and these quarrels that I engage in. So I must ask us, as Christians gathered at tenth, are we allowing our desires, our passions, our cause, our belief on what should be done to produce fights and quarrels. To preview next Sunday's sermon, just a little bit, these words, desires and passions, as he uses them in this verse and in the following verses, are not necessarily evil in themselves because it's hard for us. When we heard the, hear the term passion in English, we almost always invariably associate with something wrong or evil or sinful. But that's not necessarily the case. Now, in the context, as James puts these words that we'll look at next with them, it is clear that they are not helpful. But it is a reality that these words that are used are not necessarily bad. And that's important for us because sometimes even good things, even good things that we are convinced are right, can lead to fights and quarrels because there's a conflict within us that then exerts itself externally. I had a great example of this, and if you're here next Sunday, you're going to hear it again, but this is a little preview. You can, you can act like you didn't hear this and, and laugh next time, too. Um, yesterday, we were having a phone call with another family, and we were at home on our speakerphone. They were driving in the car. The mom was taking the five-year-old daughter to an amusement park, and we had been trying to get together, trying to make this conversation, and we finally connected, and the mom was taking the five-year-old to an amusement park, and... 
she said, let me pull over to be safe. And so she pulls over, but she pulled over right beside the amusement park to have this conversation. Well, since it was on speakerphone, we heard every word. The mom is trying to have a conversation, and the daughter in the back, the five-year-old, is having, saying, Mommy, Mommy, the amusement park. Mommy, why do you have to be on the phone? Mommy, what are you doing? Let's go. So we finally made the, the phone call very short. You see, her desire was not evil. It was not evil to want to go to the amusement park. But the timing was terrible. And the mom wanted to have the conversation with us, and we wanted to have this iron something out. And she was like, well, let me have this conversation. And those competing desires were not evil. But if they were allowed to get to the point where people were saying, I've got to have this, I've got to have this, you can imagine the impasse that it would be. In the context of James, what he's addressing here is that when we allow these passions and these desires, when we allow earthly wisdom to dictate how we respond to them. Now, if we're honest, we could see that at many times we have been convinced that we are right, that perhaps even among the church, church members, church leaders, that my view is the most biblical and the most true, and that anybody who disagrees with me, they must be wrong. Let's be honest, we have been engaging in these things, these conversations at various times. What James is saying is we've allowed good things sometimes to take control because we are living by earthly wisdom. So what's the solution? What's the solution as he writes in here? These quarrels and these fights among you as our passions come out and war within us that comes out. Well, in verse 10 of this chapter, James says this, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. He is giving an overview of who we really are and giving an overview of this must come from outside of me. I must humble myself to say I don't always have the right answer. I don't always have the best plan. I don't always know what God is doing, but I will trust him anyway. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter 2. Being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Just look, just think about what that would look like here at 10th if we did that in love on these debatable issues, on these things that we have disagreements on, that we raise to the level of scriptural importance, but really they're down here. The call for us tonight is to consider ourselves as we read this verse of what causes the quarrels and the fights among you as it stems from the passions at war within us. See, because everything is, this is inter- an internal issue, I need help from outside of myself. And secondly, this internal struggle is revealed by a final standard of authority that is external. It is God's law. It is what James says previously is the perfect law that gives liberty. It's a law that gives liberty because it exposes who we are and why it's so bad. So he goes right again to the root of the issue, which is the heart, the heart of the heart. We are challenged by God's laws because his ways are not my ways. And he echoes what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 to 3, that God's invisible qualities, 
His moral law are evident to all humans. And when we consider these things, when we consider the Ten Commandments, for example, no society has supported these as good things for an extended period of time. Yes, there may be cultures, one or two, who for a while elevate things like murder or say it's okay. But those things cannot last because they go against God's law. So look at these things. Look at verse 2. The first thing he addresses is that of murder. So you desire, in verse 2, and do not have, so you murder. In some form or another, in every culture, again, murder is of the innocent is deemed as unacceptable. After all, there could be few societies that would last for very long where murder of innocent men and women and children is an acceptable practice. Now, even though they may condone it at some point, they will end. But James here is saying that when our passions and desires rage within us and work their way outward, individually and then corporately, it can lead to murder. Now, I know most of us tonight would respond with, but I've never murdered anyone. And this is why we need to remind ourselves again that James echoes not only the sixth commandment in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 13, you shall not murder, but also the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 to 7, where he says, if you've ever hated someone so much that you've murdered them in your heart, that you wish that they were never around, that you wish that they would just go away and just die. If we live by earthly wisdom... It is unspiritual, earthly, and demonic. It leads to strife, to hatred, to the point of desiring such harm to someone else who is made in God's image. So the law tells us, do not murder. And James is saying, this is what you're doing. You're not doing it with your hands. You're doing it in your hearts. Second, he addresses the issue of coveting. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight And quarrel. You shall not covet the tenth commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Says this You shall not covet your neighbor's house, nor your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant or female servant, or his ox or his donkey, and just in case we missed it because we're pretty thick sometimes, or anything else that is your neighbor's, you shall not covet that. You shall not desire it for your own. Many people have commented that this one comes last, coveting comes last, because we would not find need to murder if we weren't coveting. We would not find need to have adultery if we were not coveting lustfully. See, when we don't get our covetous desires, what we want, how do we usually respond? Not with uh, the usual responses, but with fighting and quarreling, and we've all been there. Not with, don't do this, but I think that's what I'll do. We've all had moments when we look around us and realize that our cars, our house, our social status, whatever is not as nice as others around us. We can fight with God and ask why that we are not better off or fight with others that are not supporting us as they should to make our life easier or better. So murder, coveting. Third, you adulterous people... In verse 4, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14 says, Thou shalt not commit adultery, the seventh commandment. Again, references by Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 to 7. 
that it's not just enough to say, oh, I've never had physical sexual activity outside of marriage, but if I harbor these thoughts in my heart, where these passions and desires can thrive and run contrary to Scripture, we have committed adultery. Now, it's interesting that James would do this because this is common in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets. Jesus himself calls his current generation that he lived and ministered in an adulterous generation. Because God's people in the Old Testament especially, especially, and even in the New Testament, were following after other gods again and again. They would look to the surrounding nations for their gods and abandon the true God, which is idolatry, making idols and worshiping idols and false gods, but also spiritual adultery because they were forsaking their covenantal obligations to worship and to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They were often called out for this spiritual adultery. See, when we give full vent to our passions and desires that are contrary to God's holiness and revealed will, we are abandoning the one of whom we profess to be our Savior and Lord. Which is why James proceeds to his summary statement, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. See, the results of earthly wisdom born to its logical conclusion is that of being an enemy with God and having spiritual death. Enmity, that should sound familiar, it's from the opening pages of the Bible with Adam and Eve and the serpent when God declared that because of their disobedience there would now be enmity, hostility between God and humans, this relational issue, between man and wife, between fellow humans, indeed between creation itself. That a holy God cannot stand the very hint of impurity. We are now mired in sin. And again, James addresses this early in his letter when he fielded this question, is God tempting me? Is it God's fault? Can I blame him for my desires? He says this, chapter 1, verse 13, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And rather, as he elaborates here in detail in chapter 4, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And when desire has conceived and gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. This is the foundational problem for us all. So what hope is there? If, these, if this is coming from the inside, if God's law is telling me that I am doing these things and I shouldn't do them, how am I supposed to live? Well, the foundational hope that anybody has at all is the upward, which is found in the grace of of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just three tor- turning points in this passage in chapter 4. Look at verse 5 for the first turning point. Or do you suppose that it is no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, this is a very difficult verse to get our heads around in some ways. If you look at your Bibles, you'll notice that the ESV marks the phrase with quotation marks. But it doesn't give us a citation. As far as people know, myself, other Bible scholars, we can't find a quote of what this references. Now, of course, quotation marks were not in the Greek language of the day. 
So what are we to make of it? Well, for one thing, they didn't have the same standard of citation. And a good example that I like to give, and I've always wanted to try maybe in one of my, when I was in seminary, I thought about trying it but decided not to. Uh, the author of Hebrews, his citation would be very spotty to English teachers. And it's like this. He says things like, somewhere it says this. And somewhere else it says that. Don't try that with your English teacher. It won't go very well. But what he's doing, and I would say here, is that he's giving a quotation, as it's marked here, but he's taking many scriptures and squishing them together and giving us a summary statement. So that when he says, as it says in scripture, here's what it says. Some have suggested that he is paraphrasing Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, where Solomon writes this, toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives grace. Now, this is important because humility and grace are at the end of this section, and we must understand what they are because this is actually the punchline for the end of chapter 4. More importantly than the theological discussion about where it comes from or whether quotes should be there or not, is what does this phrase really mean? When you read it a couple times, it takes you a little bit of time to get it. And this is really a word-for-word translation from the Greek into the English. So there is, as we have it, as the ESV has it, very accurate to the Greek. But what does it mean? Well, I'll summarize it like this, as, as I understand this. What James is trying to get at is because God has loved his people so much that he sent his son to die for them and give them new life, we are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And if anyone on the ESV team were to ask me, and they haven't and they won't, I would argue that spirit here should be capitalized. The Holy Spirit now dwells in us. And when we persist in earthly wisdom and claim to be a Christian, which he dealt with at length in chapter 2, it produces fighting and quarreling and killing, not physically, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is unacceptable to life by the Spirit. So I've said this before from this pulpit, and I will say it many times again, that the good news of Jesus Christ always accepts us where we are when we come to him by faith. You don't have to dress yourself up. In fact, you cannot make yourself better. But the triune God is never content to leave us there. He's never content to allow us to just keep doing what we've been doing and living the life we've been living. His desire is that we die to ourselves, to put to death this quarreling and these fightings and these desires that are contrary to what he desires for us, which is to be made more and more in the image of Christ. And this verse is much like an exclamation mark on that thought. A huge portion of chapter 2 was devoted to correcting the notion that we could say we are a Christian, but live differently. This reminds us that the Spirit yearns over us jealously. He is jealous for his people. And that may sound odd to us, but the Old Testament says that very thing, that I, the Lord your God, I am a jealous God. He's jealous for his holiness, his name, his work, his creation, And his people. We are, as Paul will say, the temple of the Holy Spirit. So, how can we continue to live like we are not the temple of the Holy Spirit? Think about it this way if we as humans 
can be jealous. And some of us are more prone to this than others. But we've all had a pang of jealousy at some point in our life. When someone cares, we care about deeply. And we're concerned about them with so much that oftentimes it goes a little astray. How much more God's spirit dwelling in us to be jealous for his name when we live contrary to what he's commanded. But do you see the hope in this? We are not on our own. It's not a matter of me striving harder and trying to get God's acceptance. God is standing for us so much that he is jealous for us. When we live differently and contrary, he goes, no, that's not right. Strengthens us and renews us. We are not abandoned in this world. We are guarded by God's jealousy who fights for his people. Even in this context of people fighting each other, he is calling us to change and to live the life he earnestly desires for us. So this is the first turning point, that the spirit that he's made to dwell within us yearns jealously over us. Secondly, the second turning point is a bold statement in verse 6. But... He gives more grace. Grace is often used in our churches. Grace is receiving kindness that is undeserved. The Bible teaches that salvation by faith alone is by grace alone. It is unmerited. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing you can do to earn God's favor. Especially when we're fighting and warring and trying to do our own thing, God gives more grace. You see, Jesus has come to redeem the fighter. Jesus has come to redeem the murderer, those who are covetous, those who commit spiritual adultery. He does not show this, um, how people can live faith as we live wisdom and pure, peaceful lives for our, uh, because of us, but because of him. He desires this wisdom that is pure, Peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, to work its way out in our lives. And he doesn't give up on us. The graciousness that he gives us is new every morning. Because you need that. I need that. Think about it this way. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you can recall that there was a time perhaps when you were covetous, even of other Christians or maybe people's possessions. But now, by God's grace, those things that seemed so important that you just had to have do not attract you as they once did. Just one practical example, and maybe you, didn't, you were immune to this. Uh, if you were alive during the explosion of TV screens in the 1990s, it seemed like every house you entered had a bigger and bigger screen. 19 inches. Ha! I have a 24. Well, I just got my 32-inch TV. Wait, I have a 54-inch flat-screen TV. Not that there was much to watch on TV back then, and neither is there now, but there was this almost like a competition. And now I think people have gotten over that. People have gotten so past that, and that's a good thing. But just a very small example. People's cars, people's houses, people's possessions... We realize later, why was I fighting for that? Why was I so covetous? Why would I take those steps? In the words of the old hymn, this is what we should do. To turn 
your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Grace that he gives more and more and more and more to satisfy us with him and not with the things that he gives us. Third and finally, we'll consider this more fully next Sunday morning, is that Jesus, God of very God, entered this world of brokenness and weakness. He took on flesh to redeem the proud, the proud who fight and quarrel, who are naturally those who only think of themselves. He has now allowed us, changed our hearts, given us so much grace that we can now humble ourselves before the Lord. This is an act of God to deliver us from ourselves. You see, we are to live our lives now in his grace, in weakness and dependency upon him, not because we are strong or have it all together, but because he gives us more and more grace. From our call to worship, this is how Paul puts it in Titus chapter 3. And again, listen to this as I add verse 2, beginning of verse 2. And let me know if this sounds familiar to what James is driving us towards. Paul says this, Speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to all people. Why? Because we're better? No, because we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. May we, his people, spend every day living in this way, in his grace, in his mercy, turning away from our quarreling and our fighting for his honor and glory alone. Let's pray. Our great and mighty God, would you, through the work of your Son, by your Spirit that jealously groans within us, would you strengthen us to do your will this week, And every day that you give us on this earth, that you would be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen.
Receive now the benediction. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen.